Well, good morning, church family. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name's Andrew Wild, and I'm so glad that you've joined us to worship the Lord. And in the event you're relatively new to our church, or maybe you're just looking to get a, a little bit more connected, I want to mention that next Sunday, uh, immediately after the second service, we are going to have a very informal, uh, family-friendly luncheon because the other pastors and I would love the opportunity to meet you and get to know you. You can sign up for that on our website right now, or even quicker, you can go to our Church Center app and you can register for that right now. Well, today we are going to conclude our sermon series on the book of Jonah. So as you recall, uh, this book begins with God instructing an Israelite prophet by the name of Jonah to go to the Assyrian city of Nineveh and to preach to these people. And uh, Jonah says, I don't think I'm going to do that. Nineveh is, is east, and Jonah goes due west. He hops on a ship for Tarshish. And rather than kind of just washing his hands of this guy and, and finding another more faithful servant, we see that God pursues Jonah. He chases after him. He has compassion and mercy upon him. And Jonah calls out in repentance in chapter 2, and he experiences God's grace. And chapter 2 ends with Jonah declaring, salvation is from the Lord. And then at the start of chapter 3, we see that God recommissions Jonah to go to Nineveh. And this time, Jonah obeys. He, he shows up in Nineveh, and he begins to preach. And surprise, surprise, the people are receptive to this message. Jonah says, you know, your, your wicked ways have come up before the Lord, and unless you repent, you're going to experience divine judgment. And, and, and revival breaks out in the city. The, the, the people of Nineveh, these, these, these wicked Assyrians, they, 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 they turn from their evil ways and they cry out to God in prayer. And the chapter 3 ends with this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And you might think the book would end right here. I mean, doesn't this seem like a nice conclusion? It appears that, you know, all the loose ends have been tied up. There's no unresolved conflict. It's a clean ending. Story's over, right? No. And, and, and far from being some appendix, what we're going to see is that chapter 4 is actually the climax of this book. This is where the, the primary theological message of this book is communicated with great power. So just to tell you a little bit about Jonah, in, in other prophetic books in the Bible, the focus is often on the words of the prophet. Well, Jonah's a little bit different. The focus is actually on the prophet himself. This is what we might consider a, a prophetic biography. So in, in, in other books, uh, when we read the prophetic books, we're focused on what God is communicating through the prophet. Here, we're going to zero in on what God is communicating to the prophet. And once again, we're going to see that there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. So as we begin chapter 4 now, we can't help but notice that there's a contrast. Now, now in order to, to fully appreciate the contrast, I need to teach you a Hebrew word, all right? It's, it's a Hebrew word that appears nine times in this short book, and it's the word ra'ah, 
Can we say that together? Rah. Yeah, if, if, when you go to that second syllable, it sounds like you're coughing something up. You're, you're saying it right. All right? And, and, and th this word has a broad range of meaning. So it, it can mean bad or evil. It can have this connotation of disaster or calamity. It can communicate displeasure or discomfort. It kind of depends on the context. And as we reach the end of chapter 3, this, weird, this word appears twice. What we see, if we could get 310 up again, is that the Assyrians, they turn from their, their ra'ah, their evil ways, and then as a result, God relents from the ra'ah, that is the disaster that he said he would do to them. He doesn't do it. And then we get to chapter 4, verse 1, and we see someone here is the exact opposite. Here's what we're told. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. That word displeased is ra'ah. Actually, if we were to translate this sentence as literally as possible, it says it was a great ra'ah to Jonah. A great ra'ah. If you've got the ESV Bible open in front of you, you'll note that there's this little footnote above the word exceedingly. You can go down and, and, and see the, uh, the alternate translation where they kind of make note of this as well. So, so what's going on here? The pagan, the pagan Ninevites, they get rid of their ra'ah. And then, and then God gets rid of the ra'ah that he was going to send. But guess who's now full of ra'ah? Hmm. God, God's servant Jonah. We're told that God's anger cooled off when the Ninevites repented. But Jonah's anger is kindled. Literally, it says it burned to him. And here we see that Jonah demonstrates a need for spiritual growth. And, and one of the ways that, that we see his need for spiritual growth is the lens through which he views people. It's a distorted lens. He, he has rose-colored glasses on when he looks at himself or other people that are like him. And he has a different set of glasses for people who aren't like him. So Jonah essentially divides humanity into, into two different categories. There are sinners who deserve God's grace, and then there are really, really bad people who deserve God's judgment. And guess which category Jonah puts himself in? It's the former one, right? Jonah, Jonah is of the opinion that it's okay for God to have compassion on him, but not on those Ninevites. When, when Jonah thought about the mercy that God showed to him, sure his thinking was that, oh yeah, we all make mistakes, nobody's perfect. But when Jonah thinks about the mercy that's just been extended to the Ninevites, he's thinking, come on, God, you, you have got to be kidding me. Do you know what these people did? At the end of chapter two, Jonah praises God for the compassion that he's experienced. But now in chapter four, we see Jonah takes exception to God's compassionate nature. This same mercy that, that, that filled Jonah with thanksgiving at the end of chapter 2 now fills him with anger when it's extended to these Ninevites, to the bad guys, to those people. They don't deserve God's grace the way that he does. He doesn't put himself on the same playing field with them. As, as we think about this, 
It reminds me of a, a parable Jesus told about a father who had two sons. So there was a, an older son and a younger son, and the younger son did something that would have been very offensive in the ancient Near East. He went up to his dad and he said, uh, why don't you just go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance now? And his father did it, and that younger son went and took that inheritance, and he squandered it on reckless living. Eventually, uh, this son came to his senses as he was slinging pig slop to the, to the pigs that he was feeding. And he thought, all right, uh, I'm going to go home. And, and I know I'll, I'll no longer be a son, but at least I could be a hired servant. And as he's making his way home, his father sees him from a long way off. And his father runs to him, and he embraces him. And he puts the best robe on his shoulders, and he puts a ring on his hand, and he puts sandals on his feet. And he says, let's have a party. Let's celebrate this occasion, because my son was lost, and now he's found. Now, the older son, he was out in the field when all this happened. And as he makes his way back toward the house, and he hears the dancing and, and the music, he gets a little curious, and he asks some questions. And when he discovers... The occasion for the festivities, he becomes resentful. He's indignant. He, he refuses to even go in the house. Does this remind us of anyone we've been reading about? I mean, who's the older son, right? It's Jonah. And here's the irony. In chapters 1 and 2 of Jonah, he's the younger son. He, he's, he's the rebel that's experienced God's grace. The older son, he, 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 he's ticked off because there's no way this, this rebellious younger son should receive this kind of reception. And this is exactly how Jonah's heart is as well. He's thinking, you've got to be kidding me, God. These Ninevites, they're getting off easy. He wants to see them condemned and judged. And what God wants to teach us is that we're in need of the exact same grace as those really wicked sinners. That there's really no such thing as those people. That we're all those people. We're people in need, desperate need, of God's grace. And God wants to help Jonah realize this. He wants to help him grow in grace. And so he orchestrates this little object lesson. We see in verse 5, that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. So Jonah is sulking here. He's pouting. He goes out and he pops a squad east of the city and he's, uh, he's thinking to himself, well, you know, may maybe, maybe these Ninevites they're actually going to return to their wicked ways, and then God's going to judge them after all. That, that's what he's hoping for. Jonah is hot, both emotionally and physically. And so we see in, in, in verse 6 this, that the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And there's actually a little wordplay going on here. This, this sentence can have a double meaning. Uh, that word, the, to save, 
Um, it, it can also mean to shade. And that word discomfort, guess what word that is? Anybody remember? Ra'ad, you got it. So it can also mean evil. So, so th- does this mean that God appointed this plant to come and to shade Jonah from his discomfort, to sort of deliver him from his misery? Or does God appoint the plant to save Jonah from the evil that's in his heart? I think it's both. As we read on, we see that Jonah's exceedingly glad about this plant. Uh, The grammar in this sentence is identical to what we saw in verse 1, where we're told it, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And this really underscores the contrast between Jonah's, he's he's got exceeding anger that the Ninevites are saved from their ra'ah, but now he has exceeding joy that he's been delivered from his own ra'ah. And we can can shake our heads at Jonah in this instance and be like, come on, Jonah, what were you thinking? But I think we all know that the Jonah syndrome can be fairly widespread, isn't it? And, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know that none of us are immune from it. I mean, do you, do you always respond with mercy in the same way that God has shown mercy to you? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, when we see the sin and failure and mistakes of others, do we kind of extend just naturally the same compassion to them that God's extended to us? Or... On occasion, sometimes, maybe, our, our, our judgment and condemnation are more natural responses. See, I think this is an area where we all need to grow in grace. We, we, we don't always respond to others the same way that our Savior has responded to us. And it's because we don't share His heart. And God wants His people to share His heart. He wants us to grow in grace. He loves Jonah just as he is. He loves us just as we are. But he doesn't want to leave us just as we are. So we see that God goes to work trying to align hearts. In verse 7, we see that when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. (laughs) Do you notice a word that was repeated? It's the word appoint, right? It's the same word we saw in chapter 1 when God appoints the great fish to come and swallow Jonah. And I think this word appoint is emphasized to help us realize God's sovereignty over all creation. So God appoints the, the fish. He appoints the plant. He appoints the worm. He appoints the, the, the scorching east wind. We see that the sea creature listens to God. We see that the plant listens to God. We see... The worm listens to God. The wind listens to God. We even see that the pagan sailors in the, in the, in the, in the Ninevites, they, they have this sensitivity to the word of God. 
But ironically, you know who has trouble listening to God? The religious guy. We see that as a result of the death of the plant, Jonah's mood changes. He's no longer exceedingly glad, is he? He laments, it's better for me to die than to live. And once again, God asks Jonah a question. He says, do you do well to be angry for the plant? See, back at the beginning of the chapter, Jonah is upset. He's angry because God spared the Ninevites. And now he's angry at the destruction of the plant. And this time he levels with God. He says, I've got every right to be angry. Angry enough to die. It's an idiomatic expression. It's, um, it, it means to the extreme. It's kind of like us saying bored to death. Jonah tells God, I'm, a, I'm as angry as I could possibly be. Now watch how God responds with another question. God has this pattern of doing this. So you think, um, God shows up to Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, where are you? Uh, did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to? God shows up to Cain and he says, where's Abel, your brother? God shows up to Job and he says, uh, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Jesus asked the Pharisees quite a few questions. You know, sometimes I feel like God's come to me, not in an audible voice, but I felt like, you know, I've, just, I've heard him kind of plant this idea. Andrew, what were you thinking? Maybe you can relate to that. When God asks us questions, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer. It's, it's usually because he wants to point out some error in our lives, and then he wants to lead us in the way of repentance and correct us and help us grow in grace. That's what we see God doing here with Jonah in this final question. The Lord said, you, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. Essentially, God says, all right, um, Jonah, let me see if I got this straight. And if I do, uh, does this make sense to you? You, you, you? you look with compassion on this plant. And in the Hebrew, there's actually a suffix on the end of that word plant that's been throughout the chapter. And it denotes a diminutive. So uh, in the English language, uh, we don't diminish a noun with a suffix. We just change the word altogether. So um, cat, we change it to kitty or dog becomes puppy. But those of you that have some familiarity with the Spanish language, you know, the, the Spanish language will do this sometimes. They can add a suffix on the end of the word uh, to make something smaller. So in Spanish, uh, dog is perro. And a puppy is a perrito. Or um, a flower is flora. And if we wanted to call something a little flower, we would say florita. Uh, it's how we make something smaller. And so that's uh, what's going on here with this word plant. And God says, okay, Jonah, let, let me see if I got this straight. It, it, it's okay for you to look with compassion on this little plant. 
Well, what about the enormous city of Nineveh, Jonah, with a population of 120,000 souls, people who are morally unaware and spiritually ignorant? Do you think maybe it's okay for me to show a little pity there, Jonah? Jonah, you're, you're showing concern for this, this small little aspect of my creation, this, this one mere plant that you never nurtured or you never tended. Do you think maybe it would be all right if I showed some compassion on this large group of people who are made in my image? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And then just to drive home the point, God adds this note about the cattle. It's like Jonah. All right, even if you don't care about the cattle, what about the animals? Jonah, you, you, you love plants. You seem to be a nature lover. What, what about Elsie the cow? What, what, what about Ferdinand the bull? What about Mary's little lamb? What, what about all the, the cute little pugs and the Labrador, Labradoodle pupples, puppies, you know? You, you going to care about those, Jonah? And then the book ends right there. It's like a total mic drop on God's part. And I, and I think the reason it ends with a question is because this is a question God wants all of us to answer for ourselves. He wants to challenge this in the, us. He wants to know, how are you going to answer this? Are we going to be like Jonah, or are we going to line our hearts with God? We think about Jonah here. He, he's got a case of misplaced priorities, doesn't he? I think, can we all agree that it's a little self-centered for Jonah to care more about the fate of a plant than the fate of all the residents of Nineveh. Pretty self-centered. And yet, I think sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we as people, that we can fall into a similar pattern and we can become more concerned with our problems and our petty affairs and our own personal comfort, and we can neglect greater gospel matters. We can spend our resources dreaming about how we're going to underwrite vacations and upgrade the car and make some home improvement projects and pursue our hobbies and we can miss out on the opportunity to partner with God and the work that he's doing through ministries and missionaries to reach people with the gospel all over the world. So I'd ask you, does, does, does your stewardship of what God has blessed you with, does, does, does that reveal a concern for the spiritual well-being of others or does it reveal Jonah syndrome. Or what about what bothers you? What upsets you? What we see here is that that can sometimes indicate what matters most to us. For those of us that uh, own a home, what, what happens when you make this enormous investment and you start taking on a mortgage? I think what happens is uh, sometimes that... Uh, we can be more concerned with our neighbors and how they're taking care of their property than they are with the eternal trajectory of their souls. We can drive through the neighborhood and find ourselves worried about, you know, when are they going to take down that trash can? Or, you know, are they ever going to trim that tree? Or what's up with their grass? 
than they are with whether or not they have a relationship with Jesus. Or for those of you that have kids, what about our kids? Uh, we, we can become more concerned with their progress in the classroom or their progress on the playing field, how they're doing at lacrosse or soccer or basketball or baseball or whatever sport they're involved in. We can be more concerned with seeing them excel there than, than they are excelling in the grace of God. In, in the book of Jonah comes and it challenges us. It says, don't, don't, just, don't just take a seat. Don't just sit back and watch when we need to be concerned with people and their spiritual growth and the relationship with the Lord. Jonah challenges us to reevaluate our priorities and then to realign our heart where it's not aligned with God's. I think the second way Jonah challenges us with regards to how we relate to those who are not like us. See, Jonah is upset because God had compassion on people he didn't care for very much. The Ninevites were those people. And, and I don't know who those people are for you, but I do know that we, we live in a culture that feels pretty polarized right now. And we think back to last year, to 2020, and the three big stories that dominated the news, you know what they were? It was the pandemic, it was a presidential election, and then it was the police and race-related riots or protests. The, the, these were issues that all caused people to take sides, and it pushed all of us further into our own corners, and it created kind of this us versus them mentality. And so we've got, you know, vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. We've got those that were for the lockdown and those that were against the lockdown. And, you know, we, we could talk about masks too. Um, just, just from the amount of emails I've received over the past year, let's just say even in our congregation, there's a broad range of opinions on that one. We've got Republicans and we've got Democrats. We've got Blue Lives Matter, and we've got Black Lives Matter. There's all kinds of things that foster an us-versus-them mentality. And depending on where you come down on these issues, I'm guessing you have a, um, a different, maybe a, a, a less complimentary way of referring to those who have a different perspective than you. These are issues that are just sort of ripping at the fabric of our society it, and I don't know where you come down on the issues, but here's what I suspect. Those who aren't aligned with your thinking, you know what they are? They're those people. I mean, if, if, if you're here and you're Christian, you know who those people can be? Those people could be atheists or Muslims. Or if you're politically conservative, those people can wear a Bernie Sanders t-shirt. Or if politically you're more progressive, those people can fly a Trump flag. Those people can have a different skin color than you. Those people can have a different accent than you. Those people can have a different sexual orientation than you. Those people can dress different than you. Uh, they can have more money than you. Those people can have less money than you. Those people can live on a different side of town than you. Those people can have a different sin struggle than you. Who, who are those people for you? And then the question is, this week, 
when you see that bumper sticker, when you see that sign in the yard, when you, when you see that post, when you see what they retweet, when you see that article of clothing that causes you just kind of to, to scratch your head and to question their intelligence, are, are, are you going to want God's judgment for that person? Or are you going to want God's mercy for that person? And are you going to help them experience God's mercy? That's how this book challenges us. Uh, 2 Peter 3 talks about the return of the day of the Lord. And Peter says, you know, the Lord isn't slow in coming, as some understand, slowness. But the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish. And so when those people come on your radar, is that something that excites you? It's like, God, that's great that you haven't returned yet because now there's a chance that I can share your mercy with them and they can come to repentance. How do we get this last question in the book of Jonah right? Well, you know, what we discover is that Bible knowledge isn't a safeguard against spiritual pride. You, you, you can have great doctrine, you can have perfect theology, and you can still have a bad heart. I mean, Jonah, he knew his Bible pretty well, and he still gets this question wrong. So how do we align our hearts with God's heart? Well, perhaps a, a more modern-day example might help. If you've ever read anything about what happened in the Pacific during World War II, you know that the, the, the Japanese just committed some incredible atrocities. They were barbaric. Uh, it's, it's difficult even to fathom the cruelty that they exhibited. I had one example in here. My wife was like, no, you should take that out when I gave her a chance to look at it. So we'll just, just, we'll just leave it at that. And one of the individuals that spent some time uh, in Japanese captivity was a man named Jacob de Shazer. He was part of the famous Doolittle Raid over Tokyo in 1942, and he was captured. And he spent 40 months in Japanese prison camps. He was systematically tortured. He was routinely beaten. He was starved. He spent 34 months in solitary ca captivity. Awful. And towards the end of the time, he was given a Bible to share with a few others. And this changed everything. In DeShazard's words now, this is from his book. He said, God gave me grace to confess my sins to him, and he forgave me all my sins and saved me for Jesus' sake. Suddenly, I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. DeShazer survived. Uh, he went on to attend Bible college. He graduated. In 1948, he became a missionary. And guess where he went? Japan. Man, if there would have been anybody that would have been justified in saying, the Japanese, no, they're those people, it would have been DeShazer. I mean, how does that happen? 
He says that he begins to look with pity upon them. It's the same word we see there in chapter 4. Well, he gives us a clue how this transformation happened. He says that when he realized that God forgave him all his sins and saved me for Jesus' sake, that's when the perspective changed. When he surveys the wondrous cross, that's when the heart begins to melt. You know, it's pretty uh, amazing that that in itself happened, but you know, um, he also wrote this pamphlet while he was there entitled, I Was a Prisoner in Japan. And that pamphlet made its way into the hands of Mitsu Fuchada. He was the Japanese commander who led the raid on Pearl Harbor. This is the guy who called in Torah, Torah, Torah to indicate that the raid had been successful. And that pamphlet that DeShazza wrote made its way into Fuchada's hands. And Fuchada read it, and he went and he bought a Bible, and he read that, and then he gave his life to the Lord. And a few months later, DeShazza and Fuchada met. And not long after that, they began preaching to the crowds together the good news of Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. How does something like that happen? It, it happens when the message found in the book of Jonah penetrates a heart. And so we'll just, we'll just end our time together the same way the book of Jonah ends. How, how are you going to answer for yourself that last question in the book of Jonah? Let me pray for us. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts, and see if there's any offensive way in us, and lead us in the way that would be pleasing to you. We invite you to come now and to align our hearts with your heart. We know that we need to grow in grace. We know our own sinful tendencies. Jesus, I, just, I think of what you said when you said that whoever has been forgiven much loves much. And he who has been forgiven little loves little. I pray that you would help us to look to the cross and to realize the extent to which we have been recipients of your grace. And Lord, I pray that when we leave here, that we wouldn't do anything that would contradict that message. That we would not just believe the gospel, but that we would live it in a way that would be pleasing to you. And we know we need your help to do this. Come and work in us what would be pleasing to you. And by the power of your spirit, give us the strength to do it. And we ask this in the wonderful name of our Savior and for his glory. And all God's people said... Amen.